everybody and welcome back to episode nine of the Thrivership podcast. Um, today is a different kind of episode. Today I'm going to be talking about my own mental health journey and the reason for this episode is it was World Mental Health Day um, two days before the um, the recording of this podcast um, and I really wanted to talk about my own journey with my own mental health because you know in every coaching session that I have with every coaching client that I meet I come up against the legacy of their own mental health journey and it's something that we're becoming a lot more um, willing and able in society to discuss but the fact is your mental health is part of your overall health and if your mental health is not right is not optimal um, it's just as serious if not more serious for you than some physical or any physical um, ailment that you might have um, and I think a lot of it's still quite taboo um, I've said on the podcast before, as, and as I heard another uh, mentor of mine say, that we don't look like the things that we've been through. So you would never know, unless you listen to this podcast, um, the things that I'm going to talk about today that I've experienced and I've been through. And I bet you will feel the same about yourself. You don't wear these things on, on your sleeve. People can't see them. Um but the intention for me behind choosing to share this is that it may, in a small way, um, more normalise the fact that we all have our health challenges mentally and we can still go on to thrive and to do great things. Um, so that's really the reason why I wanted to do this. It's the rawest, realist, <laughs> most personal um, thing that I could share today. Um, but I'm willing to do that in the spirit of normalising discussions about mental health. Um, if this is your first podcast that you're coming to, welcome. It's probably going to be an intense one <laughs> just because of the subject matter and the fact that it's my personal journey. Um, but whether it's your first one or you're a regular listener, welcome back. And um, yeah, if you like the podcast, I just want to remember to say it at the top of the show, please like it on the platform that you're listening to or follow me, follow the show. Um, if you listen on Apple Podcasts or if you have access to Apple Podcasts, I would be grateful for a rating or a review because that really helps me reach more people, which just helps the podcast move up the rankings and means that I can reach more people with all of this amazing free content, which would be really grateful. Uh, for, I, I would be really grateful for. Um, and lastly, if you do like the podcast, if you do like the free content that I put out on my website and on my social media channels, feel free to buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash drivership coach. You can find the link to that in the show notes, along with any links or anything that I mentioned throughout the course of this episode. And it just remains to say that I'm trying something new today. I'm actually recording the podcast um, on video. Hey, video people. Um, at the same time as I'm recording the audio because I want to try putting the uh, video of my podcast making experience on YouTube. Um, in case you're interested, you can check that out. Um, 
So no great preamble today. I think the only way to do this is to jump in with both fee. Um, so I'm just going to start talking. Um, I suppose the things that have been part of my mental health journey are things that will affect a lot of people in one way or another. And the things I'm going to talk today about are anxiety and depression, um, about disordered eating and about unhealthy relationships. Um, but I'll start with anxiety and depression and these things do get lumped in together and they are very very different mental health um I hate the word illnesses very different mental health experiences um so I will talk to them slightly separately but I put them together because for me living in a state of extreme anxiety over a long long period of time and I'll go on to explain that led to depression um, at one point in my life, I think there was only one point in my life where I'd probably really been clinically depressed and diagnosed as such. Um, but anxiety has been the thing that I have lived with since I can remember. For me, the difference between anxiety and depression, anxiety for me um, is a worry about the future, a worry about things that might happen, a constant living in a state of alertness, um, a state of fear about things that may occur um, in the future. Whereas depression for me is also more of a backward looking state. It's um, a state in which you live in your experiences of the past that were negative where for me I would tend to ruminate on or be unable to escape the darkness of certain experiences that left me really numb and, and unable to enjoy the present or look forward to the future and um, so for me there's kind of a distinction a high a diff, a real distinction between anxiety and depression I don't really understand why they're lumped together in kind of you know medical um, literature as part of the same thing because they for me feel very different but I'll start with anxiety um I remember being a young child like preschool age early school age and feeling sweaty palms tummy aches um, you know, not wanting to do things and, and feeling really sick about that and feeling nervous. Yeah, getting the sweats, getting those butterflies in my tummy. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I've lived with anxiety my whole life um, because that, that kind of feeling has never gone away. Um, it's more intense at certain times, but I, I, it's, it's never really gone away. And I just thought that that was normal. I actually thought that was just life. I never questioned it. I never questioned that that was like, maybe some people don't go through life living like that um, until much more recently. I'm talking about like the last couple of years, um, maybe the last three, three years or so where I actually came to understand that what I was experiencing, this constant high sense of, you know, heightened alertness, heightened vigilance, fear, paranoia, um, nervousness in different situations um, was anxiety and um, 
I think it manifests itself for me in lots of different ways. There's there's a social anxiety aspect, which is quite large for me. There's also a professional and career anxiety piece, which has been large for me. Um, and I suppose I've been able to determine some of the roots of those. Um, when I was growing up, I moved house a lot. I moved probably through five different schools by the time I was 16. Um, and what that led to for me was really not having a sense of foundation, a sense of roots, a sense of, um, having friends that were there and would back me and, and go on my journey with me and who cared about me and, you know, liked me and stayed with me consistently. And I just came to never expect very much of people, but it also meant that when I was going into new situations, I felt nervous and anxious uh, a lot of the time and I always worried about what people would think of me. I can't say that I was terribly successful in making loads of friends and that kind of thing. I did make friends. I had had some friends, but I never felt like, and I think a lot of people feel this, I never really felt on the, the inside circle, that inner circle of people who seem to be confident and have friends around them in a consistent kind of way. I was kind of on the periphery quite a bit um, until I was 16. And then I, I did meet um, somebody who became my really close best friend for a couple of years until I then went away to uni and moved again. Um, but I think that social anxiety really stayed with me. I never felt really rooted, secure and safe um, with friends. And yeah, it made me quite, quite cold, I suppose, quite, um, it's funny because I suppose people that know me and who are friends with me now wouldn't say I was cold, but ultimately I guess I never really had any expectations of, of people and friends and, and that kind of thing. And I think throughout my whole childhood, I, I constantly felt, the those tummy aches those getting those sweats whenever I had to go into new situations and there just seemed to be a lot of those because I was moving a lot and uh, yeah it just it was tough it, looking back it was actually tough I didn't know it different it didn't feel tough at the time it just felt like that was life but um, it was tough and to kind of put that to add a layer of context onto that um I grew up in a family where my caregivers had very high expectations of me as I was the eldest child, I'm the eldest child, um, but of all of all of the children, um, they had high expectations of, I suppose, both academic achievement as well as social norms and conventions and um, but how we were to behave and not, you know, what we were not to do as well. Um, and, you know, the consequence of stepping outside of those expectations, you know, where it's not performing academically enough or not presenting the right image to the world um, in one way or another was quite punitive. Um, there was a strong consequence for, you know, acting out of alignment with those expectations. Um, let's just suffice to say that the consequences were in effect quite belittling um they yeah the consequences I knew about it I knew about it if I fell outside of those expectations I I 
it was very clear that I had let people down and was made to feel not good enough. Um, and that was pretty, pretty clear from, from the beginning. And, um, that made me feel like I was outside of normal. It made me feel like I was, yeah, just outside of what I was supposed to be. Like I wasn't, I just failed to meet expectations. Um, and I think this has different effects on different people. And a lot of that is just to do with nature, like the, the personality that you come into this world bearing. For me, with my personality, it made me work harder. Feeling like I wasn't meeting expectations or that I wasn't good enough. It just, I internalized that, blamed myself effectively and just worked really, 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 really hard. Um, in school, I worked really hard, got good grades, went to university, um, went into a really kind of typical career went to work in the city in banking um and I kind of internalized all of that like I've got to do better I've got to do better I've got to do the best that I can do um in this kind of very people pleasing way and experiencing great levels of anxiety if at any time I felt that that level of success or that level of hard work was questioned um it just made me people please even more it made me um work harder um I definitely had a fear of authority, a lot of anxiety around authority. Um, it's a kind of twisted thing, isn't it, when you think about it, that you're actively trying to please people in authority, because for me, that was a reflection of my caregivers, but equally having a fear, because the fear is that they can withdraw their approval at any time. And if you secretly don't feel good enough at all, because of you know lots of things that have happened in your upbringing... Um, your experiences as a younger person, um, you fear that that authority figure could take away their approval at any time. And it gave me an immense fear of authority, um, which is a problem when you work in a very hierarchical <laughs> environment that as much as it claims to be a meritocracy is really not. And um, yeah, it didn't hamper my progression it absolutely reinforced my progression in my career in many ways because actually oh, I had, you know, a, a respect to the point of fear for authority. I had a very hardworking ethic because I was constantly trying to prove myself and get that validation. I was also incredibly resilient because, I mean, go back to the point I've moved house loads of times, started afresh loads of times, had dealt with caregivers who kind of withheld affection and praise and so I didn't I, I was really resilient I was really tough I was able to survive situations that um, perhaps other people in my peer group were not so the kind of stresses and strains of going through an early career in a high-pressured environment were, I'm not saying it didn't take its toll on me, it absolutely did, but I was kind of ready for it, I was cut out for it, and I was probably the ideal person from their perspective, from the employer's perspective, because they could put me under huge amounts of strain and I didn't crack that at that point. Um, so I carried on in that sense, and I you know, I started in, in my career in the city at 21, um, that was in 2000, when I graduated uni, and... 
I would say by 2000, maybe 2011 or so, I had progressed, I progressed up and up and up. And um, in 2011, I got my first kind of real significant regional head um, role. And that's significant because at that time, it was the first time that the telltale signs of extreme anxiety manifested into physical signs that showed me oh I now realized to be I was approaching a breaking point um I hadn't I hadn't got a clue that that's what was happening but I started experiencing physical symptoms beyond what I was used to living with beyond like nerves and sweating and um you know the generalized feeling of fear um and dread that that generalized feeling um actually specific physical symptoms for me, those physical symptoms happened in a really acute uh, manner over a couple of weeks. I started to get um, dizzy. I was on the train on the way home and when I'm talking dizzy, I'm talking extreme vertigo, like the whole train was spinning. Um, um, and that, that kept happening. That just kept happening to me for a few days on and off, um, which happened at the same time as migraines. I'd always had migraines. I'd put them down to hormonal factors, but I was living at that point with a constant migraine. I mean, several days, two weeks, even at a time, I, I just had a constant migraine. For me, migraines appear with aura. So I, I lose my vision um, when a migraine's coming on. So I knew they were migraines rather than just um, bad headaches. Um, so I had persistent migraine, vertigo, and then I started to go deaf in one ear, in my right ear. And I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought I was really unwell. I, you know, the worst things kind of go through your head at this time. I, I want to say, if I'm honest, I felt like I was dying. I, th I felt like something was happening in my brain and, um, you know, the worst things kind of go through your mind. It feels a bit, um... <sighs> I don't know what the word is like a bit of an overreaction now to say that I felt like I was dying but at the time I had no experience of anything like this I didn't know that what I was experiencing was anxiety um I was I was unable to breathe properly I was always kind of having to catch my breath probably having mini panic attacks and this this moment in my life it was a, a couple of weeks where these symptoms all started to appear and I just didn't know what was going on. I ended up taking a couple of weeks off work. Um, I had some CT scans. I saw doctors. They couldn't. They couldn't um, diagnose anything because there was nothing wrong in my brain um, from a kind of clinical perspective. But looking back now, that was the first moment in which my anxiety really tipped over into um an unmanageable state and it was prompted really by the promotion that I'd got at the time and the increase in responsibility I suppose looking back um because it clearly kicked all of my kind of authority fears and um people pleasing um behaviors into overdrive and it was too much for me to to bear bearing in mind that at the same time I was also raising two kids as a single parent um and you know that's no that's no small thing so i think there was i had a lot on my plate um and over the kind of following let's say 3 to 4 years i suppose 
I continued working and things got better, you know. I, I was definitely still living with generalised anxiety, but things got better. I just integrated. I levelled up. Uh, I integrated my new role and continued to do very well and got promoted again um, in that company. And then I left that company after a really good career there and went to another company. Um, and the experience of leaving and starting again in another, in another company was another um, real danger point for my anxiety. And had I known what I know now, that that was what I was experiencing and that was what I was living with, I would have been able to prepare and manage myself through my anxieties and maybe got some professional help or whatever. But I didn't realise at the time that I, I was not having any treatment for anxiety at this time. It was not diagnosed. Um, and, and I didn't I didn't know what I was experiencing and I didn't know to anticipate it. But what happened was I ended up moving from a company with one particular culture to a company with a very, very different culture, um, almost opposite in some respects. And I felt like a fish out of water. And my gosh, my anxiety was in overdrive at that point it was it you have the initial kind of um acute anxiety when you when you have a situational change so you start a new job you know you're going to have naturally some anxiety there and that that gives way to then you're either going to kind of integrate that and feel really good about things or you're going to feel like hmm, actually I'm not settling here it's not quite right and that that was the situation for me it wasn't quite right um, and it ended up with me feeling this real sense of not fitting in and having that anxiety become more and more acute every day, um, at which point I can say that I think it tipped over into depression, um, because one day I got home from work I lay down on the sofa, I started to cry and I couldn't get up. I just couldn't get up off the sofa. Um, I, it's like, I don't know, it's like a balloon. The balloon just went pop. The last bit of energy that I had that had been kept me going, that had been keeping me going, just left me. And I couldn't face another day. I'd done so many days at work where I just couldn't face another day in the office. And but I did. I got up and did it. I had kids. I you know wanted to be a good role model to my kids. I had moved house. I'd got a big mortgage. I had responsibilities. And being the kind of people pleasing, high achieving person that I had been raised to be, I knew that I wasn't going to just ditch on my responsibilities. I was going to keep doing them all. But yeah, it in the end it even got me. <laughs> it even got me. And. Um, I crashed, I really crashed and I couldn't go back to work. I couldn't go back to work. Um, looking back now, it was nothing that a new job wouldn't have fixed. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And um, certain other things that were happening in my life at the time made it impossible to see that that was the right solution for just a new job. A new job would have would have probably fixed everything as well as a bit of time out and um, some therapy. But in the, on a positive sense, um, what I did find really good at that time was I had access to CBT through work and I had a, you know, a healthcare plan with work and I did the CBT, I had a 12 week course. 
amazing, really amazing. It had got to the point where I couldn't leave the house and I was, um, yeah, I was agoraphobic. I, I had a lot of fear about leaving the house. I was very paranoid. I was paranoid that people were looking at me, were thinking bad things about me. I, I had panic attacks if I tried to go into a shopping centre or anywhere where there was a lot of people, a supermarket, I couldn't breathe. Um, I, I was in a really bad way and the CBT really helped me to manage that and take some initial steps forward on that. So the CBT and just having a break, a break in time um, was was really important. And what I've come to know since then as well is that having a routine which helps you nourish your mental health is everything. Um, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since that particular time. Um, but what I have found really beneficial, even through all the ups and downs that I have experienced since that time, is the importance of that health routine. So I have a mental health routine that I stick to now um whenever I can I when I've dropped my son to nursery in the morning because I can't do it before that he gets up very early um I start with some meditation I meditate for anything from five to thirty minutes depending on what's going on for me and what I want to meditate on if anything and then I do some yoga and the yoga is really good as an extension of the meditation for me but it also kind of just stretches me out and there's so many mental and physical benefits to that. So I I do my meditation and my yoga and I also train in the gym pretty hard. And that is a great thing for me for getting out of my head and into my body. When I'm exercising my body hard, I can't be thinking, I can't be overthinking. And if I do all these things consistently, it keeps me out of my head in a, in a bad way. When I'm in my head, it's more in a calm way. And um, that for those those things, those three things together for me are my kind of baseline measures for managing my own um, mental health. And if I don't do that routine, I feel the effects. I mean, when we had the COVID lockdown, I couldn't do my routine, my mental health routine as extensively because I was looking after my two year old at home a lot. And it really was really difficult to find the time to do those things as a single parent um even today you know th- last week for example things were so busy um work wise I just couldn't find the time to do everything consistently you have to be flexible you have to understand that things can't always be um super consistent but I noticed the effect come the weekend I just didn't have um a lot of calm uh in the tank anymore and it did affect me. So this week I'm back on that, back on my routine and I'm feeling good. And I think that's all I'm going to talk about in relation to my anxiety and depression. Um, the one other thing that's been quite a major feature of my life, um, although it's well managed and has been well managed for the last 20 years or so, is disordered eating. Um I suffered anorexia severely as a teenager and I just wanted to talk about that because even the other day I, I became aware that someone that I I know, um, she's older than me, she must be in her 50s, 
suffers with anorexia still and it's been a lifelong battle for her um i think the prevalence of social media today makes it easier than it certainly was when i was suffering from anorexia to um find like-minded people and in some senses finding other like-minded people helps to reinforce your behaviors but it's also perhaps easier than ever to also find um support for recovery so it's a double-edged sword i don't know a lot about um anorexia on social media i don't know a lot about disordered eating on social media because it's not content that i would consume at all but um i wanted to share my journey with disordered eating because it's been a lifelong um challenge for me and is something that I think it will live with me for the rest of my life. But um, again, in the spirit of normalising mental health um, and men- mental health challenges, I wanted to cover this a little bit. Um, I mentioned earlier in my section on anxiety that I had grown up in a family where expectations of me were very high. And yes, was I perfectionist? Uh, yes. Did I have high expectations of myself? Yes. Did I feel like I ever met those expectations? No. I mean, it's classic, really classic. Quite often people that suffer from disordered eating, especially anorexia, are, um, you know, set themselves incredibly high standards, standards that are impossible to meet. And I definitely um, fell into that category. But prior to that, I think as a much younger child, I always felt fat I felt um bigger than all the other little kids that were um like in my primary school and stuff for example I I was bigger I was tall I was um heavier set now when I look back at photos I was just lovely I wasn't overweight but I felt overweight looking at these other skinny white blonde girls (laughs) in my school I just didn't look like them. I was bigger than them. I had frizzy hair. I just didn't look the same as them. And that felt obvious to me from the start. Before I even knew about being thin or fat or anything, I felt different and felt very outside. And at first, I remember very early in primary school one day coming home or, and and having somebody having said something about being fat, I was fat, and I got this label fat, I didn't know what it was, but I got this label, and I must have said to my caregiver, oh, am I fat? And my caregiver saying, well, you are big, and, you know, it's probably not even something that my caregiver will remember, but I still remember it, and I must have been less than six five five or six years old um it stayed with me I didn't get that reinforcement that I was actually good enough as I was I was told actually probably those people and their opinion is right and that was the beginning of quite a difficult journey for me a lifelong journey um as I grew up I remained physically the same I remained you know bigger taller than my um my peers and um yeah I was I knew it I knew about it and I felt very self-conscious of it but nothing ever um really happened until I hit puberty and about age 12 I must have just naturally shot up in high and also lost 
way at the same time as I probably hit some kind of puberty development stage. And at that point, I got comments from everyone that saw me how great I looked, how how did had I been on a diet? Had I lo- how had I lost this weight? I looked amazing. Um, comments just relentlessly. I remember being going to see people and I didn't know anything had happened because I hadn't been on a diet. I hadn't done anything differently. I just grown. I just developed. I'd just gone through one aspect of puberty and naturally lost some weight, probably gained some shape in my body. And that was, that was it. All I got was these amazing compliments. And so there's a second seed there that's sown. The first seed was, okay, you're too big. The second seed was when you're smaller, when you're thinner, you get lots of good praise and attention. And I think it was probably the first thing I really remember having loads of genuine praise and attention for, despite my academic achievements and everything. It was the first time people had kind of centered me and made me feel good. So that's a damaging seed to sow when someone is vulnerable. And um, yeah, it that, that then um, was challenged further because when I was 14, so we're talking a year or two, two years later, after that experience we moved house again and at that point um, I moved schools and I comfort ate I gained weight I didn't really know what I was doing I just I was comfort eating I remember going to the vending machine at school every day and buying like five chocolate bars I didn't really know that was bad I was I must have just been comfort eating um because I was lonely again I'd moved house again um, I was anxious, I was dealing with my anxiety, no doubt. And um, I gained weight. And the same thing happened again. I started getting these comments, felt on the outside. Um, but this time I had more power, more control. I was older, I was more independent of my parents. And a way I started to get control back over that feeling of being out of control, I suppose, was by um, restricting my eating. And you know, one thing led to another. It's a, it's an addictive and dangerous cycle because yet again, what happens when you start to lose weight as a woman, people will go, or young, very young woman, a teenager at that time, people would say, oh my God, you look amazing. You've lost so much weight. You look fantastic. You look great. And at this point, there was no turning back for me. And I just kept losing and losing weight. I kept restricting my eating more and more. And there's something physiological that happens when you're starving yourself that you, your your body, your brain gets addicted to that, that feeling. I don't know, a kind of pathway gets written in your brain that this de- deprivation of a basic human need actually becomes... Um, something that you become addicted to it's really strained it's really it's a really strong feeling um even talking about it now I don't think I've been back to this for oh god so many years but I can I can really link into that that feeling that addiction and um it grips you so tightly and it gripped me to the point where I was very dangerously, dangerously, dangerously ill. I was losing my hair. Um, I was skeletally thin. Um, I My parents didn't know what to do with me. I mean, who would know? Who would know what to do? Um, it must have been terrifying for them to see me walking around um, 
barely walking actually because it it hurt me too much to walk hurt me to sit hurt me to lie down my bones poking through my skin it was it was horrendous now looking back um and uh, how did i recover um i did have um a psychotherapist at the time um psychiatrist that's why i paused there i was trying to think of the right word he was actually a psychiatrist um i didn't have the greatest experience i don't think anorexia was well understood by the general medical profession at the time and although it was understood by my psychiatrist i i don't feel that those sessions really really helped me much in the end what helped me was that i socially um got into a situation where the people that i was um spending a lot of time with especially someone I came to have a relationship with really uh, valued women and people generally but at that time women particularly who were not skinny and really encouraged me that actually eating more a more full diet eating healthier as a result of that I looked better and it didn't god it didn't happen overnight but it just over time that consistency and that support helped me get my weight up to a point where I was not thinking irrationally anymore and when my weight was up I think this is certainly some of the the theory behind some treatments for eating disorders if you can just get the person's weight up to the point where their cognitive function kicks back in then they can kind of go forward from there and and I did go one step in front of the other um but it's something I still live with today I don't I'm I'm not um anorexic I haven't been for all that I haven't ever been since then but I still live with fears of certain foods and uh, fears of gaining weight and and fears of I I, I rationalize them out and I know that nothing bad is going to happen but it's something that will probably never leave me and um, yeah just look around you there there could be people dealing with mental health challenges that you just you don't know what they're dealing with on the inside, things they could be living with, things they could have experienced. Um, my my journey with anorexia was not a particularly tragic one. I, I recovered and I um, survived and thrived through and past it. But if, regardless of whether it's anorexia or something else, whether it's anxiety or depression, there are people around you who could be um, living with all kinds of things and you just can't see it on the outside so have a bit of consideration for the things that they might have been going through and the last um topic that I wanted to touch on today is unhealthy relationships um I'm not a therapist I'm not a counsellor um so I'm not going to talk about the reasons why well to any great extent we generally and lots of different people get into lots of different unhealthy relationships but I did want to touch on the mental health legacy of surviving unhealthy or abusive relationships um it will probably be no surprise to you having listened to the rest of this podcast that um I chose partners that were not perhaps in my best interests um and the reason I did that was because I just wasn't sufficiently whole enough in myself I didn't have sufficiently good self-esteem um to choose somebody who was actually 
going to compliment me and and help me um, and nourish me um, in my personal relationships. And so without going into a great deal of detail, um, I persistently chose partners that were very emotionally unavailable, very hard on me and um, the extent to which those partners were emotionally unavailable, hard on me, not good to me, (laughs) increased, increased and increased as time went on. It was like a lesson that I just was unable to learn. Um, And I was unable to learn it because I wasn't in therapy and I wasn't um, getting help for my self-esteem issues and my my anxieties and and the challenges and all the things I was experiencing in life. I hadn't got help for those. So I accepted behaviors in others that were massive red flags even at very early stages in the relationship um and the consequence of that um was an extraordinarily high price to pay i think in the context of everything else and even now i'm talking about it on here Context of, you know, a childhood and then a career and a personal life marred by anxiety and depression. Uh, Run alongside that, the context of an eating disorder. Run alongside that, the context of partners who weren't able to sort of nourish my well-being. Um, And as I say, the partners I was choosing were increasingly dangerous for my mental and physical well-being. Um, because I was unable to choose well, um, meant that at one point, um, at the point that my last, the last relationship I had broke down, I was absolutely broken. The um, the nature of the unhealthiness of that relationship and the level of emotional um, and other abuse that was... Um, was targeted at me in that relationship left me absolutely broken and uh, that was two years ago now I had to do so much work putting myself back together again and it was really the point at which it it was a rock bottom point for me where I knew things couldn't get any worse for my mental health I I literally was so numb I was to survive I just had to put one foot in front of the other and um, really it was only having my children that enabled me to get up every day get up do what I had to do to survive and to push forward Um, and I just wanted to touch on this because I want someone out there who might listen to this who this might help um, to know that just put one foot front in front of the other. Just keep going. Put one foot in front of the other, and one day things will start. You'll start to have a little ray of sunshine through all of those clouds. And I also wanted to just talk about the things that I did during that time that really helped me get back on track. I got a really good therapist, a really good counselor. I stayed working with her for eighteen months, um, and. Having that therapy helped me really understand um, the reasons why things had happened. And that's really important to understand if you're trying to recover from mental health issues. Um, Not that everything is has a reason, but 
there are there are reasons why things kind of happen in some circumstances and things can be compounded by our decisions and our decisions are informed by the way that we have experienced our life so having some therapy some counseling is helpful for unpicking those things and giving you control back it enabled me to find my own roots my own center and stop being swayed by other people um and it helped me to start to put myself back together on my own terms. It helped me get to the point where I could build my own mental health routine, understand my values, understand who I was as a person, put together my life, my career in the way I wanted it to be, just understanding what I wanted it to be. Um, and I think we come to a point when we've been through a lot of really bad, difficult stuff where we just think, would obviously I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't been through this. And this is a complicated set of feelings because I feel like we don't want to glorify what we've been through. I am not who I am today thanks to the difficult experiences that I've been through. I am here, I am who I am today despite all of those things. Um... But equally, I think there needs to be some acknowledgement of the experiences that I've had and that others have had on their journeys. Um, I listen to a podcast called Say Your Mind, which is broadcast by Kalechi Okafor. Um, and in one of her recent podcasts, she talked about the lessons that have been shown to us and the need to um, take those lessons, integrate those lessons and then leave them behind and move forward um, thinking more clearly, having integrated those things and, you know, leaving behind so you can go on and live your best life. And I feel like that really spoke to me. It really spoke to me as I was kind of thinking about my own progression and my own my own journey. Um, but yeah, I would encourage you to reflect on your own mental health, your own mental health journey, um, be cognizant that other people could be going through their own mental health challenges and you would have no idea. My friends and family, some of them will listen to this episode and go, oh my God, I had no idea. Um, some of it, obviously some people close to me know a lot of it, but other people will not know any of it and will probably be surprised. Um, so you never know that person who might be behaving strangely or who might have gone quiet, who might have dropped off the grid. They might be going through something and just um, take the time to educate yourself about feeling comfortable having conversations about mental health. If you are particularly suffering and feel like you would benefit from talking to someone, um, I am aware, I cannot recommend, but I am aware of a um, an online um, solution where you can find therapists. It's called BetterHelp. Um, I haven't used it myself, um, but in this time of um, COVID where we all need to operate remotely, they do offer um, online therapy sessions. So I, it's a place to start looking if you can find a therapist that may be helpful for you. Secondly, if you want to upskill yourself to be able to help people who are suffering from mental health, health crises, 
I can highly recommend um, going to the resources on Mental Health First Aid England, MHFA England. They offer mental health first aid training. I'm a qualified mental health first aider. I did their training um, about a month ago. And it's a set of training that teaches you how to understand how people may present with um, different symptoms of mental health crises, anything through anxiety, depression, all the way up to um, schizophrenia. And um, just helps us understand those mental health challenges in more detail so that we might best be able to support people who we may come across in our work environments, in our family lives, um, or even support others who may be supporting their own family members with uh, mental health challenges. I can highly, highly recommend all the resources on their website, on their social media, and also obviously the Mental Health First Aider training. Um, Thank you. I've been Caroline Smith. This is the Thrivership Podcast. Um, the journey that I've talked to you about today is really the reason that I do this podcast and the reason that I do the help, uh, the, the helping work, the work that I do now, helping and coaching others. Um, I hope it's been helpful for you. Don't forget to check out the show notes, check out my website, um, www.thrivership.coach, where there is a lot of free resources to help you on your journey to Thrivership. Thank you for joining me today and I'll see you next week.